Good evening. This evening, I'm going to talk about trends over time in health in the UK, uh, and alongside that, the implications of some of these for the NHS, National Health Service. Looking at variation over space and time tells us a lot about both what is possible and where health is going. Uh, and um, in a previous lecture in this series on public health uh, in the UK, uh, I looked at the very significant variation geographically in health outcomes and health problems around the UK and the reasons for that. This one uh, looks at the other uh, variable, uh, variation over time. Uh, and that is important because it tells us directions of travel and actually many of the trends in healthcare tend to be remarkably stable over many decades. If things are going well, they carry on going well. Uh, if things are going less well, uh, the same is true. Now, um, I've showed this slide uh, before, uh, but I think it bears repeating. The last 170 years have been the most transformational for health in human history. A quite remarkable change uh, has happened everywhere around the world. Uh, these are data from uh, England and the UK. And when this college was founded, and really for some centuries afterwards, uh, the average life expectancy for people uh, was around 40. And then around the 1850s, due to a variety of public health uh, and uh, medical interventions, things steadily then started to improve. And they are still overall improving. So life expectancy in the UK uh, has roughly doubled over that time. Alongside this, uh, it's not just the life expectancy has increased, it has also become increasingly concentrated. So it used to be that if you were born, you had a very high risk of dying in your first few days, but you had high risks of dying uh, in multiple periods over your life in childhood, in young adulthood, in older adulthood, uh, and of course, uh, subsequently in old age. What has happened over the centuries in this uh, rather nice graphic uh, from our world and data shows this, uh, is that the age at which people uh, finally die has become increasingly concentrated. Uh, people, once they're born, have a very high chance of uh, fortunately living on uh, into their late 70s or 80s or indeed longer. And this concentration of the age of mortality, the age at which all of us will die, uh, is continuing. So these are ONS data, more recent data. And in the light blue line, what you can see is there have been improvements in mortality. Uh, down is good in this situation. That means that uh, rates are improving. There have been improvements in mortality in people in their 90s, uh, but they have relatively flattened off over the last decade. Whereas those are continuing improvements, particularly in people in their 70s and to a lesser extent in people in their 80s. So what this is leading to is that people are continuing, there's an increasing concentration of uh, the age of mortality uh, to people in their 80s and above. This is a great uh, success of modern medicine uh, over the last decades. Alongside this, there has been a really remarkable shift in the demographic pyramid, the age of the age structure of the UK, really as a result of the changes in medicine, in public health, and wider development. 
And here what I've shown is ONS data, Office of National Statistics data, going back to 1911. Uh, and what you can see over this time is back in 1911, uh, there were very large numbers of children, smaller number of younger adults, smaller still of older adults, and of very older, uh, elderly people, uh, really very small numbers indeed. By the 1950s, which is just after the NHS had been formed, uh, a larger number of people who are older, uh, but still a quite substantial number of children, relatively speaking. Uh, and you can also see the, uh, the various uh, gaps, the, boo the baby boom uh, eras around, which you can actually see as a result of World War I uh, and World War II. By uh, around about now, 2018, I've used this because the data just got 2038 uh, and I just wanted to do a comparison. Uh, what you can see is that the age has stabilized. So the number of children, uh, younger adults, older adults, and uh, older people uh, has got uh, more uh, in sim similar over age. And this has big implications for what diseases people have. But at the top, you can see a significant bar, and that bar is people who are in their 80s or above. And if we project forward to 2038, uh, what, we will see, what we see is that the people who, number of people who are older steadily increases. So the whole structure of society, and therefore the structure of the diseases that the NHS and its predecessors deal with, has shifted very significantly over the, over the last uh, several decades. Uh, and uh, we now have a very different pattern of disease as a result. Alongside that, there has been a gradual shifting around of the population. Internal migration in the UK, uh, as in many other countries, is extremely important, more important than external migration, in fact. And what you get is a heavy concentration of older citizens living around coastal areas uh, in particular, but also in rural areas more generally, with younger populations uh, concentrated in the cities. And that, uh, that process is continuing, and this has got very big implications for the provision of healthcare uh, and also social care, care services in the, long, in, in the long run. Because what you have is the, uh, the people who've got the most probability of disease uh, increasingly moving to areas outside cities, uh, and we have to make sure we can provide a health service and social care service for them. And the darker the color in these maps, uh, the larger the proportion of the population over the age of 85. And this compares the period when I qualified in medicine uh, about uh, five or six years ago uh, and where we're going over the next 15 years. Alongside these very dramatic shifts, in fact, in population longevity and where people are living with uh, high numbers of risks of diseases, there has been a really profound shift in the way in which healthcare is provided. And I think this is really quite, uh, quite clearly demonstrated here. Uh, this is a rather nice BBC graphic. Uh, the light um, brown colors are 1948, and the dark green colors are 2018. And if we've gone back to the point when the NHS was first founded, there was a much larger uh, number of beds in the NHS, despite the fact that the population was both smaller and younger than it is at the moment. Much of medicine was about people lying in beds and gradually uh, getting better, convalescing. So the bed state 
has gone right down over time. This would be true for most high-income countries now. Uh, that does, of course, have you know, big advantages, lots of things, as we'll come on to, are now dealt with as outpatients, as walk-in day cases. But when we have a major crisis, as we've had in the last uh, two years with COVID, uh, this difference, of course, has uh, very profound practical implications. And then alongside that, uh, a really substantial uh, change in the number of uh, healthcare personnel, uh, both doctors and nurses, over time. So bed numbers have gone down, uh, numbers of nurses and doctors uh, have gone up very substantially over that period. So that's a bit of the background. Now, over this time, and this is a slightly complicated series of graphs, or two graphs, on the left in for women, uh, the right for men, but I think it's important just to see how medicine has really shifted over the period of the NHS uh, and the period just before that. In What we have here is ages, top age uh, one to four, children, uh, youngest children, at the bottom of these graphs are people in their 80s. And it's the principal cause of mortality, what people would die of if they did die, um, in terms of the various major diseases. And the ones I want to highlight are infectious diseases, cancers, and heart disease. And what you can see moving over time is that if you'd gone back uh, to the formation of the NHS, a really high proportion of mortality was both in younger people and it was infectious in origin. Uh, and then there was a shift over uh, to uh, cancer being a major issue in women, but really heavily dominated by heart disease and stroke, cardiovascular disease, uh, in men uh, over some decades. And only recently has that started to decrease over time. So there's been a big shift in the pattern of diseases over that period of time. And this is a different way of really visualising the same thing, uh, in the dotted line are infectious diseases. Uh, and infectious diseases were actually more important as a cause of um, mortality uh, in the early, about 100 years ago, uh, just over 100 years ago, um, uh, than cancer. And then over time, infectious diseases have improved really rapidly, and that is because uh, medical science's ability to combat infections has been extraordinary over time. And we're seeing this again in the way in which medical science has combated a new and really dangerous threat to COVID uh, in the last two years. Uh, cardiovascular disease rose over time and then fell very rapidly. And I'll go into that in greater detail. And then in the middle, uh, we have cancer. But the relative importance of these big blocks of causes of mortality have really shifted over these, uh, the, the last century. I'm now going to go through um, the big uh, uh, areas of um, disease and mortality in greater detail and talk about some of them in terms of their trends. Uh, the, the first one is just infectious diseases, and I'm going to talk about that in slightly less detail, uh, largely because I'm the, the series I'm going to do next year uh, for Gresham College is going to be about infections and particularly their routes of transmission. But what the graph on the left shows... Uh, is we still have significant numbers of people being in, admitted to hospitals by infection. Uh, very young children are at high risk of being admitted to hospital, and then older adults. But when it comes to actual mortality from infection, uh, mortality from infection in, in uh, children, both young and old, and in uh, younger adults, has been not gone completely, but massively reduced. 
whereas infections remain a significant risk for those of older ages. And this is for all infections. It might be urinary tract infections or pneumonia, just as we're seeing at the moment with COVID. So infection does remain a significant threat, but in higher income countries, it is now primarily a threat in older people. That's been a significant trend over time. And just given an example of one of the major killers uh, of, of people over the last century, tuberculosis in the UK. Uh, so this is over the last century. What you see is that the rate of number of cases, this is a logarithmic scale, so just to, for those who are looking at the graph in detail, uh, logarithmic scale on the left, the rate of number of cases has gone down. The rate of mortality has gone down a lot faster, and that's been because of effective treatments in addition to things that have led to TB tuberculosis being much less common in society. It was a really major killer uh, in, within living memory. And the things which have tended to lead to the reductions in infections over time have been public health interventions, so sanitation, uh, better diet and housing, uh, uh, things like antisepsis. So there was a significant risk if you went into hospital a century or more ago, particularly uh, 150 years ago, you would actually catch an infection from the doctors or nurses looking after you or from the environment. So antisepsis is really critical, childbirth and other situations. Vaccination, as again we're seeing at the moment. Antibiotics and antivirals, things like the anti-HIV drugs, but also social interventions. And uh, when we have to, we reach for those uh, as we've had to in the last uh, two years. So there are multiple ways in which we can intervene with infections and medicine, public health and medical science have been hugely affected at reducing the risk of infections until we really get into the oldest uh, part of our lives. This is, however, not something which we should take for granted. And the biggest threat in this area uh, is antimicrobial resistance, both uh, to bacteria, antibiotics, uh, uh, and also potentially antivirals, uh, uh, antifungals, uh, and antiparasitic drugs. But antibiotics are the most important of these. And here's an example of how rapidly this can change. This is an infection called E. coli. It's a very common infection uh, which people can get from urinary tract infections, cause of sepsis, and how resistance to a major class of drugs, cephalosporin, spread over Europe over a really short period of time. So if we overuse, if we misuse antibiotics, uh, what we inevitably drive is antibiotic resistance. The, anti the bacteria respond to that, they evolve around it. Uh, and this is a threat uh, which we have to constantly be on the lookout for and constantly be innovating around. So most things in infectious diseases are going very well, but this risk uh, of antibiotic resistance and antimicrobial resistance remains a potent one. Next, a group of diseases I'd like to talk about are the cardiovascular diseases. This is primarily heart disease, particularly coronary heart disease, uh, and stroke. Uh, and these data are going back to the 1970s. So I'm getting closer uh, to the period that we're talking about at the moment, the most recent data from the British Heart Foundation. Uh, and what this looks at is male and female outcomes in terms of age-standardized coronary heart disease mortality rates. And over the period we've been talking of the, since the 1970s, so this is in the lifetimes of the great majority of people watching this uh, lecture, the overall rates have dropped really dramatically 
of the risk of people having heart disease and all the complications that uh, go along with that in the longer term, both for men and for women, an even greater drop for men than for women, uh, in part, as uh, we'll come on to, uh, because of reductions in smoking. But around about, just, uh, just under, 75% reduction over that time. That's a really stunning achievement for what was, uh, for a long period, and still is, but was even more dominant uh, as the principal cause of mortality uh, in this country and most other westernised high-income countries. And if we look at younger people who are having coronary heart disease, uh, this drop has been, if anything, even more dramatic. This is now extraordinarily rare uh, for people to die of heart disease uh, it, when in, under 75 years of age, uh, provided they're under medical care uh, and uh, take uh, reasonable precautions, uh, including the uh, advice they're given and the drugs they're given when needed. So there's been a really extraordinary change in heart disease. Alongside this, and this is, an, this is something which I'm just going to use as an illustration, I could have used other diseases, has been a big shift in the way in which medicine itself is practiced. There have been changes in drugs, which I'll come on to, but there's also been changes in practical procedures. If people had really furred up arteries, uh, until um, uh, relatively recently, uh, the only thing that was available was, open, was surgery that was really major. This was very major surgery. The ribs cracked open, uh, and people operating directly on the heart had high, uh, high risks associated with it, major operations, long recovery times. Increasingly, most of the uh, interventions both done as an emergency and also done to relieve symptoms, are being done by something called angioplasty, where you float a balloon into the heart vessels and blow it up and maybe put in something called a stent, which keeps them open. Uh, usually done as a day case or can be done as a very short uh, stay case, uh, and a completely different risk uh, profile, much easier for people to do, uh, in terms of going in, going out, no long-term uh, recovery period, and highly successful. This has been a transformation in terms of the technology by which we intervene uh, to open up coronary arteries. And again, this would be true for many other areas, and move to short, much less invasive, usually radiologically guided uh, procedures. Alongside the improvements we've seen in heart disease, there have also been really rapid and uh, dramatic improvements in stroke. Uh, a very debilitating disease, obviously. Many people die of it. Others um, uh, have long-term disability, although many people who have strokes have relatively uh, minor um, long-term disability. Uh, and again, very uh, remarked improvement since uh, the end of the 60s and beginning of the 1970s over time. Some of that has been environmental public health things, uh, some of that has been uh, in secondary treatment. So big improvements in this other major cardiovascular disease. Now, the remarkable improvements we've seen in cardiovascular disease are made up of, and this is true for most other uh, diseases, multiple modest advances, 3% here, 5% there, maybe 10% uh, occasionally, stacked on top of one another. Medicine does not progress uh, except in a very small number of examples, and I'm going to illustrate this with one later on, by breakthroughs. What it progresses by is large numbers of incremental advances that each one has a small, what's called a attributable fraction, but if you add them all together, they make an absolutely massive difference to the chances that someone will have disease, disability, and death. 
And those, in terms of cardiovascular disease, include smoking reduction, arguably almost the most important, antiplatelet drugs, aspirin, drug that's been around for a very long time, but its importance in heart and heart disease and stroke really uh, only uh, demonstrated much more recently. Uh, statins for cholesterol, for people who've got high cholesterol. Uh, reducing blood pressure, antihypertensives, but also uh, other things like reducing the amount of salt in people's diets over time. Uh, drugs for heart failure, something called the ACE inhibitors, which many people uh, will uh, be on who are watching this. And then when people have major events like heart uh, attacks or strokes, uh, thrombolysis, clot-busting drugs, uh, and then the physical uh, interventions, angioplasty and surgery uh, that we talked about um, in two slides ago. And it's this combination that has led to this really big shift uh, in cardiovascular disease in the UK. And the pattern of cardiovascular disease you now see coming through emergency uh, rooms uh, and the accident and emergency departments in the UK and elsewhere now are very different to what they were 20, 30 or 40 years ago as a result of these. Cancer has also had really remarkable improvements in treatment. And this uh, graph, it's a relatively uh, busy graph, but I think is a very encouraging one. This shows the changes in 10-year cancer survival. So these are people who have a cancer diagnosis. What proportion of them are alive uh, and generally well and having a very full and normal life 10 years later? And we're now in a situation very different to where we would have been in the 1970s, where the most people uh, diagnosed with cancer will live for 10 years or more from diagnosis. And many of them will make, have a full recovery uh, and live a normal lifespan afterwards. And the left-hand side of the arrow is where the survival was uh, in 1970s. And the right-hand end of the, the arrow is close to where we are now. Of course, there's always a lag in knowing uh, how, how things will go through. Uh, and some of these, we're now close to the point where almost everybody makes a full recovery and has survival. Testicular cancer, melanoma, for example, uh, are, are significantly improved. Prostatic cancer has improved very substantially breast cancer. There are others, unfortunately, where the improvement has been much less good, uh, and I'll highlight in particular uh, two. Uh, the most important, the most dismal, I'll come on to, lung cancer, almost no improvement in mortality uh, over time. This is a largely uh, preventable cancer. Uh, and then um, ovarian cancer, which is something which women get, where the problem has been for a long time, and we have not yet solved it, and there was another uh, study which was reported in, this week, in the last uh, two weeks, uh, where we've not really been able to pick it up early enough, and it's late diagnosis that leads to significant problems with ovarian cancer. But just to talk about the four uh, really largest cancers, and then one other one which uh, is, is very common, uh, in men, lung cancer, prostate cancer and bowel cancer, uh, and in women, uh, lung cancer, bowel cancer, uh, and breast cancer. Um, of course, there are many others, and I did a whole series of talks on cancer last year for those who are interested in looking at, in more detail at each one of these. If you look over time, what you see is there is a steady change in terms of survival, 10-year survival in this case, uh, for almost all of these cancers, and I could have chosen many others. I've just chosen these because they're the most common. You can almost put a ruler against these, and you can see how, how rapidly improvements have occurred. Uh, the last few years are slightly foreshortened, so it appears to be flattening off. It actually isn't. Uh, what you're seeing is steady improvements uh, over, some, over multiple decades. 
So prostate on the left, uh, breast cancer on the right. Now both in a situation uh, where around 80% uh, will survive 10 years or more. Uh, then we've got bowel cancer, common in both men and women. Again, same thing. You can see the trend over time. Once things have started to improve, science steadily moves forward, developments occur, and things improve. And on the right, the very common cancer, uh, melanoma, where we're now up to 90% survival rate. But it hasn't happened in one jump. With each of these, what you see is incremental improvements leading to remarkable changes in overall mortality. This is medical science. This is what medicine, medical science does. Now, these steady improvements in cancer prevention and treatment are continuing for most, though not all, cancers. Earlier diagnosis is absolutely critical for most what's called solid tumours. Those are the ones we talked about. They're the kind of cancers that grow in a particular organ. Uh, surgery, very important for particularly solid cancers. Chemotherapy and, and radiotherapy, important for many cancers, particularly things like uh, myeloma or, um, or leukemia or lymphoma, steadily improving. But we're also, but these are relatively old techniques that are just being incrementally improved. We're also getting whole new classes of drugs and of treatments. So uh, things called targeted therapy, these are not chemotherapy in the conventional sense. And on the right, I've shown an example about uh, a drug uh, which is now used routinely in uh, higher income countries for chronic myeloid leukemia. And people, it's, this has changed this from a disease that people rapidly died of to one which is actually a chronic disease. They, will, they don't get rid of the disease, but they take a drug and they, it is controlled in the way that, for example, diabetes might be controlled. It's treated with the drug over many years. And then immunotherapy is a whole area of cancer where, where the, someone's own immune system uh, is being employed to fight cancer inside them. And this is a, a rapidly advancing field uh, as thing uh, over, the, over the last um, decade. And of course, prevention remains much better than cure. Far better. I mean, these are really remarkable improvements in treatment, but everyone would rather actually just not have the cancer in the first place. And we are also uh, making significant strides with cancer prevention. There is unfortunately uh, one cancer which uh, is not a sign of, which is very common, uh, as a cause of mortality, and that is lung cancer. And here we've got the same kind of time frame, but 10-year survival for lung cancer. And as you can see, very different outlook, almost no progress at all. This is now the UK's number one killer from cancer. Over one in five people who die from cancer will die from this. And the reason that people like me get very concerned and very upset about it uh, is that this cancer is almost entirely caused for profit. The great majority of people who die of this cancer, not all, die so that a small number of companies make profits from the people who they have addicted in young, young age, uh, ages and then keep addicted uh, to something which they know will kill them. So lung cancer has had, uh, is unfortunately uh, still a very major problem, almost entirely, because of smoking for profit. Smoking is gradually going down uh, over time. It's drifting down, um, but it is still a very major cause of uh, mortality, and it is still a very major cause of people going to hospital. Lung cancer, of course, is important. Very major risk factor for stroke, for heart disease, uh, for chronic obstructive airways disease, but also for multiple other diseases. 
Smoking is something which is one of the biggest causes of a very large number of uh, diseases of which lung cancer is only one. Uh, and the uh, standard estimates are that around over 90,000 deaths occur every year. So in this year and the last year, it is likely that by the end of this year um, that uh, at least as many and probably more people will have died of smoking-related disease than of COVID. It also has a very significant impact on hospitalisation um, uh, as a result. The youngest age groups are actually quitting smoking at a faster rate than their predecessors. So smoking is dropping faster in uh, today's young people than it did uh, at equivalent ages for previous generations. Uh, and that, I think, is extremely encouraging. But it is still a lot of smoking, and smoking in high-risk periods, for example, uh, when people are pregnant. And here, as we're looking over time, uh, is an example where you can actually see the, the impact of an intervention. So in the UK, there was a smoking ban in public places, uh, strongly fought, as always, by the uh, cigarette industry, as always, claiming it would have no impact uh, on health. Uh, and what you can see is you can see where the intervention was introduced and you can see an imme almost immediate change uh, in heart attacks uh, which followed that. And these are data uh, as it comes, uh, as it happens from Liverpool. Smoke, uh, cigarette smoke is not the only thing that can cause damage uh, which we breathe through our, our lungs. Uh, and the other big one, and it is one where we really uh, societally could make huge inroads, uh, is air pollution. Um, many major air pollutants are decreasing, particularly in higher income countries like the UK, uh, but they're still very high. And although people think of air pollution as something which causes lung disease, and it can cause lung disease, and it can cause acute lung disease like things like asthma uh, to be exacerbated, it can also cause uh, long-term lung disease, including cancer. Um, it's the other, one of the other major causes of lung cancer, but much less than smoking. Um, but uh, it also, and this is a bigger area, it actually has a significant risk for causing heart disease and stroke. Uh, and the reduction in air pollution over time, and um, there really has been a significant reduction, but we've still got quite a way to go now, is one of the reasons why cardiovascular disease uh, and stroke, so heart disease and stroke, have decreased along with reductions in smoking and all the medical interventions. So a big change has been improvements in uh, air pollution over time, and that will continue if we can start to reduce one of the last major pollutants in urban areas, and that is road transport. And we're now at a point in technology where we actually could significantly make really big reductions further in particularly what's called particulate matter, PM, what's called PM2.5 and PM10. These are tiny particles that get into your lung uh, and cause inflammation and significant disease and mortality. So we have the technology. Uh, it is really time uh, we did something about this. But there have been big trends in the right direction over many years for the majority of pollutants. Over time, there has also been a big shift away from, and this is, would have been very, felt looked very different uh, um, some decades ago, occupational diseases. Big public health shifts have led to occupational diseases, diseases you get only because you went to do the job you were employed to do. They've really come down uh, to incredibly small numbers compared to where they were. And the same is true of industrial accidents. So although people can complain about health and safety, uh, in reality, this has saved uh, thousands of lives. 
the last big occupational disease, uh, cancer we've got, uh, is mesothelioma. It's a cancer of uh, the lungs. Uh, really um, went up because of the use of asbestos. Removing asbestos from the environment has led to this peaking and is now on a slow uh, decline. But almost everybody who have, the, have, have this disease, for example, is a very unpleasant disease to have, uh, caught it because of industrial um, exposure or exposure through their partner uh, to asbestos. So we've seen shifts in smoking, shifts in um, air pollution, shifts in occupational risks. Um, and we've also not just seen improvements in these large blocks of diseases that cause mortality, cardiovascular disease infections and cancers. It's also, we've seen really in steady improvements in many common diseases that cause debilitating but non-fatal outcomes, or generally non-fatal outcomes. Uh, I'll illustrate this, but there are many others, uh, with diseases which are caused, driven by the immune, immune dysfunction. Uh, these might be things like inflammatory bowel disease uh, or rheumatoid arthritis. And that's because we have now new, effective immune-modulating drugs. And these can reduce the uh, effects of the immune system, essentially attacking yourself, attacking us, uh, in an unhelpful way, uh, but leave it still able to fight infections and cancers, which is its uh, principal aim. In much less need for hospitalization as a result of this, uh, and I just illustrated this, in this on the right-hand side, these Canadian data, but the same would be true in the UK, uh, comparing uh, improvements in uh, reductions in admissions to hospital for uh, rheumatoid arthritis because of these drugs uh, but comparing that to a rather older disease, gout, which has actually, if anything, gone up. So um, inflammatory diseases, and I've added on the bottom, multiple sclerosis is another one, the ability to uh, dampen down the bit of the immune system that's causing damage has improved the lives of very many people uh, with diseases that might not kill them, but certainly interfere very substantially with their day-to-day -day life. And this record of continual progress is extended to many other areas. Another example is some of the rarer genetic diseases. There are a lot of rare diseases. They are, as the title implies, rare. But if you add all of them together, they actually represent a collective impact on society and, of course, a huge impact on the individual and their families, uh, lifelong, uh, very often, uh, which is really substantial. Uh, and thanks to genomics and the ability then to use insights from that to design drugs around it or screening programs around it, we've had really good progress in several conditions, particularly ones caused by a single genetic mutation or a very small number. Uh, and that, impr that improvement with genetic uh, um, uh, diagnosis is again steadily improving. And uh, I've used, uh, illustrated this on the right with a common genetic disease here in the UK, uh, which is cystic fibrosis. Uh, lung disease uh, also affects the, um, the gastrointestinal tract and various other systems. Um, people are born with it. Uh, it used to be that lifespan uh, was very short with this. It was a disease where the majority of people would die in childhood. But by one step after another, steadily the outlook for people with cystic fibrosis has improved. 
and new drugs have been developed over the last decade which are continuing this steady improvement. So life expectancy, which used to be really in the early part of childhood, people would sa- children would sadly die. Uh, many people will live into their 40s and beyond uh, with cystic fibrosis because of uh, these improvements. And this is an example of many. This is just an important one uh, in this country. So these are areas where we can point to extraordinary progress and the ability to slow down disease, to stop disease, to treat disease, or to turn it into a chronic disease. Medical science has been absolutely transformational. I think it's also important that we look at some of the things that have gone less well. Uh, Obesity uh, in the UK has increased quite significantly. Over the last two decades, uh, from around 15% of the population Uh, to around 26% of the population. And this has a very large number of knock-on effects. Uh, And this is driven in large part because people are put into environments which encourage uh, overeating or uh, eating uh, in a way which, uh, in the long term, is extremely unhealthy. Uh, And obesity, the point about this is people should feel no shame about obesity. There's no reason for any reason anyone to uh, feel any sense of anything other than Uh, proud of themselves as a person, but it does have very significant health impacts. They can be mechanical, things like uh, knee um, problems, uh, big rise in type 2 diabetes as a result of obesity, coronary heart disease, stroke, postmenopausal breast cancer and various other forms of cancer, liver uh, disease uh, and infectious diseases, including uh, COVID most recently. Uh, All of these are made more likely Uh, when people are living with obesity. So it is very important we as a society see this as a societal problem that we should actually try to address. Because if not, many health problems which are essentially preventable uh, will necessarily uh, subsequently occur. And here, um, some things have got better uh, in uh, the least deprived areas. Obesity rates in childhood, for example, are decreasing. But unfortunately, in more deprived areas, they are in fact increasing. Uh, and you see children go, becoming more uh, likely to have obesity uh, over their childhood in the more deprived areas. And this is something which we as a society really ought to do something about. Uh, these children uh, otherwise will be in a situation this will have long-term effects on their health. So that's an area where things are actually getting worse, although there has been some more recent stabilization, but actually much more common are the areas of medical science which are relatively less successful. They're still improving, but they're improving much less rapidly than things like cardiovascular disease uh, or cancer treatment. Uh, And therefore, by a process of essentially elimination, they will inevitably increase as a proportion of the diseases that people have. And there are examples of this in every field. There are bits of medical science which are going incredibly fast, and once the field started moving really fast as as previous slides I hope demonstrated, they really start to motor. And then there are other areas which are languishing much more slowly. Uh, and some whole fields are moving very slowly relative to need. Uh, and in pre-retirement adults, I'll just give two examples. Mental health research, significant improvements, but nowhere near at the speed or uh, dramatic improvements you see with people with cardiovascular disease or cancer, and musculoskeletal disease. Uh, problems of the bones uh, and muscles. Both of these working uh, being much uh, slower in terms of the improvements and therefore it's a relative proportion of disease that doctors will see, nurses will see and indeed uh, most importantly people will suffer from, uh, they are increasing. 
An example which I think is a particularly clear example of this is trends in dementia. And dementia is not a single entity. People think of Alzheimer's, it is an important thing, but you've got two others that are important in the UK, in a, uh, which is uh, vascular dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies, and a wider range uh, of causes of dementia elsewhere. But in the UK, uh, really three major ones. And because people are surviving what would previously have been an aging heart, surviving cancer, surviving many other uh, things which life throws at them because of public health and medical science, they're living long enough to get to the point where dementia uh, is a significant problem for them. So the number of people living with dementia uh, is steadily increasing and will continue to increase because of this increase in lifespan. Because older age is, of course, the biggest risk factor for the dementias that we see in the UK. Now, important to uh, stress, this does not mean that there has been no improvement in dementia over the last decades. And in fact, particularly in men, there is evidence that incidence of dementia has gone down, probably due to smoking more than anything else reducing. Um, uh, but uh, so there has been improvements, but because a much higher proportion of the population are living long enough to get dementia, uh, we're seeing a much larger proportion. And that, here is an area where medical science has moved really very slowly. It's not gone nowhere, but it is nowhere near at the speed that others are. So relatively, this is becoming increasingly important. But another area, and one that I think is less recognised, uh, is that over time, we've moved from a situation where most people who are unwell have a single disease, and that might kill them in late middle age. It might be heart disease, it might be a cancer. Uh, or in previous years, it might be in childhood, and it might be infections to a situation where people are living old enough, and over time what we all do, this will be true for everybody, is we acquire uh, chronic conditions. And uh, multiple chronic conditions, which you accumulate over life as you go through, go through it, are increasing relative to single diseases. And this is a major problem, because the way in which healthcare is taught, the way medical science is delivered, uh, and importantly, the way that healthcare is provided in the NHS and elsewhere is that people think about single diseases. You go to a diabetes clinic, you go to uh, a stroke clinic, you go to an infectious clinic. But actually, many people have got multiple dis diseases and they interact in the same person. Uh, and this trend of moving from uh, single diseases to multiple diseases is a steady one. And I think the medical profession in particular needs to look at this really very seriously and think how do we redesign science and redesign the medical system around the fact that an increasingly large proportion of the people we see will either have no disease at all, excellent, and then really multiple diseases which interact in the same way. So quite a challenge, I think, for the medical profession and other uh, healthcare professions uh, over the next decade. And if you look at the projected number of people over time, this is, these are data from Somerset, uh, but we could have um, chosen anywhere else in the country, in fact, where there are older uh, citizens. You can see an expectation there will be a steady rise in the, people, in the number of people who've got three or more major conditions, also known as multimorbidity over time. Uh, projecting out to 2036. And this will be replicated around the country. So we've got to think about the fact that for an individual person, they'll have multiple conditions and they're all interacting. 
So that's a bit about some of the things which are going more slowly or relatively less fast, more commonly, uh, and multimorbidity. I'm just going to do, make a few comments, which because this is something which is a real threat to the health service over time, uh, about healthcare spending. And to be clear, the decision about how much money goes into health, I consider a societal question and a, therefore a political question. But how that health care, the money at any given time is allocated is spent, uh, is something which uh, doctors, nurses and others should be thinking about very seriously, because if it is inefficiently allocated, we're actually leading to less good health outcomes than we could have had otherwise. And it's an obvious point that in every high income country, uh, in absolute terms and as relative spend, healthcare spending is steadily increasing. This is partly due to an aging population, but by no means uh, all, in fact, uh, quite, uh, quite the reverse. Now, this is often thought of as, well, this is just because drugs are getting uh, more expensive and other kit is getting more expensive. Um, actually, that is not inevitably true. And to take the example of cardiovascular disease, because the majority of the drugs which are now used for that extraordinary improvement in cardiovascular disease are now relatively uh, older drugs, they're off patent, they're competing on price, they're very uh, stable in the market. In fact, the costs for cardiovascular disease in many countries have, if anything, gone down because they are essentially competing in a, uh, in a market. There's been a slight increase due to some new drug classes recently, but these are data from Scotland, they could be from other areas. So here's an example of a mature market where actually costs don't carry on going up. But that's in very stark contrast to cancer drugs, for example. Because that's moving so rapidly, almost all the drugs are uh, on patent and have uh, relatively, uh, are expensive, and increasingly, some of them are very expensive. And this is just an illustration uh, from US data, but it's true elsewhere. The average cost of cancer drugs to deliver a, a life year, and this, this is inflation adjusted, has steadily increased. So that increase in spending has not actually led to an improvement in outcome, is just an increase in cost. The drug company has, uh, perfectly legitimately, this is what they are, their um, shareholders buy shares to achieve, has maximized the profit, their profits, and little by little, the costs to achieve the same health outcome have steadily increased. And some of the more recent drugs are really extraordinarily expensive uh, and people may be on them for many years, although they are excellent drugs. So this, there is an, some areas uh, costs of drugs are going up, some areas uh, costs of drugs are going down, but particularly in the cutting edge areas, uh, this is a major issue, cancers, rare diseases, for example. Alongside that, um, there has been an increase in demand for services and uh, this is often thought of as this is just because people are growing older. And I think if you ask the average doctor or nurse in a high-income country uh, like the NHS in the UK, uh, why is the amount of work going up? Uh, they'd say, well, what do you expect? The population is getting older. So what we've got here are the Office of Budget Responsibility did a very interesting uh, analysis where they looked at the percentage increase in uh, inpatient care and outpatient care split by age band. And what you can see here is that uh, an inpatient care, probably unsurprisingly, uh, that increases with age. A older populations, older people are more likely to have to go to hospital for care. But if you look at outpatient care, and increasingly medicine has become an outpatient speciality for very large parts of care, which is a very good thing, 
what you can see is that there's been a roundabout a 5 to 7% increase year on year in every age band, almost identically. So this is demonstrating there's just simply been an increase in medicine. And as people in young adulthood or indeed middle age uh, are increasingly healthy, uh, this uh, increase in activity um, is something which I think is, to some extent, relatively difficult to explain. So a little bit on the economics. Um, it is also important if you're thinking about the impact of a health service that you don't just think of uh, your own system because health services interact in quite a large number of important ways. Now, one of the most uh, encouraging things is the improvements in medicine I've talked about for the, uh, in the UK over time have been replicated in different ways, but replicated around the world. Uh, and over time, uh, what we have on the left is life expectancy and on the uh, bottom axis is income. Uh, and this is a uh, very famous uh, graph, but it's a very important one. Where all the countries in the, line, the world are lined up. And the good news is every country in the world, pretty well, not actually at war, is moving steadily up that curve to the right-hand uh, corner. And what that means is that people on the bottom left, people still have quite a large number of infectious diseases, uh, at the moment dominated particularly by countries from Africa, middle uh, people, countries in Asia in red, uh, cancer, infectious diseases, and cardiovascular disease, and towards the right, the diseases of uh, older age, which I've talked about uh, so far. Europe, USA, uh, Japan, for example. Almost every country is moving uh, bottom left to top right. This means uh, on the Positive side, firstly, uh, life is improving everywhere. Fantastic. Medicine is really transforming the lives of people in every country in the world. Uh, second thing is that the things people die of are increasingly the same things, and this will lead actually to, an, in my view, an explosion of science because the same problems are being addressed uh, in almost every society, and this will also have some quite important economic impacts which uh, are a bit less easy to predict. But the third thing we've got to remember is that every society is now uh, looking at trying to employ healthcare workers, social care workers, nurses, doctors, and so on. Uh, and um, we are going to be in a situation where the demand for healthcare is going to go up absolutely everywhere, and the supply of people who are prepared to actually move around the world and actually provide that uh, will not go up at the same speed. So we may have a situation uh, where uh, we have to think quite seriously about our model of provision, particularly of nursing care and of uh, social care. So there are big social changes globally which will have a big impact on the employment of, for example, doctors and nurses in the UK. And that's true not just globally, but also in the near abroad. And I showed you the demographic pyramids for the UK right at the beginning, and I've replicated a slightly different one uh, at the bottom here. Uh, not only is the population in the UK ageing quite rapidly, but our near neighbours have rapidly ageing populations, and in fact they are ageing more rapidly, if anything. As you can see, the demographic structures here of Germany, Italy and Spain, there's a group of people who are currently working, but in the older part of their working ages, they're all going to retire at roughly the same time. Their need for health care is going to go up. The provision of younger people who are able to provide health care uh, is not going up at the same rate. And this is something where there will be uh, I think after, you know, something we'll need to think about as society. What do we do when there's a ratio of relatively older people needing health care and a smaller number of younger people uh, that we've been used to employing uh, both 
domestically and from our near neighbours. So these demographic shifts and uh, healthcare shifts in one country can have knock-on effects to healthcare uh, in other countries, including here in the UK uh, for the NHS. Just a final uh, few thoughts, because uh, we've talked about a, a large shift in healthcare, a large shift in populations, some of the issues uh, globally, and indeed some of the economic issues that we are going to have to wrestle with. The march of medical science is continuing and continues to be really quite extraordinary. Uh, here are some areas which are predictably going to get better, are getting better now fast and will continue to get better. There are many areas which are not predictable. I can, you know, there are many areas of medical science that we're not even thinking about now or only in very specialized areas that will probably be transforming lives in 20, 30 years' time. But here are some uh, predictable areas. Uh, new non-chemotherapy drugs for cancer, transformational for many cancers. Not only do they work very well against the cancer, they have fewer side effects uh, than many of the traditional ways of treatment. Better immunotherapy for inflammatory diseases, constantly improving at the moment. So many of these long degenerative diseases are becoming much less uh, problematic for those who have them. I just thought I couldn't not talk about briefly messenger RNA vaccines. They have really uh, been an extraordinary part of the world's response to the COVID uh, pandemic, although sadly a long way to go for every country in the world to be vaccinated. But in fact, these were originally uh, being thought of for treatment of cancers, and that they still potentially have an important role there. The steady move to less invasive procedures rather than major surgery. Uh, everyone, who, everyone benefits from this. You end up having uh, less dangerous procedures generally, much quicker ones, much, long, much shorter healing times. Uh, they're also cheaper and easier to provide. The outcomes are excellent and people have a lower threshold for doing them. So a big shift from more invasive to less invasive over time and that will continue. Day case care rather than hospital stays. Most people don't want to be in hospital if they don't have to be. The ability to turn things around, provide people with really cutting edge treatment but in very short periods of time uh, makes life uh, a lot better for them. And an area which is really critical is uh, better early diagnosis. And early diagnosis really matters. It's often the bit people think about surgery, they think about treatment, uh, but they often uh, forget uh, diagnosis. Diagnosis really does matter. Survival is often highly determined by how early a disease is caught. Uh, if treatment, uh, if you catch, for example, breast cancer in the first two stages with early uh, things, treatment is much more minor, surgery is more minor, uh, the outlooks are far better. And this is an area where, just, along, just as with treatments, we're getting better radiological imaging, various oscopies, colonoscopy, uh, endoscopy, bronchoscopy into your lungs, but other ways of visualising inside the body. Um, we're increasingly, I think, going to see a situation where artificial intelligence often overhyped but very good at pattern recognition, helps with things like routine diagnosis for uh, mammography for cancer or for histology. Uh, we'll have uh, increasing numbers of lung, uh, sorry, of, of uh, liquid biopsies, which are blood markers for cancer, hopefully allowing us to pick up cancers at a much earlier stage. And we'll be able to screen people by genotype. And it's important also to remember that you can screen people based on behaviours and stratify their risk as well as technology. It's not all about kit. 
but that can change. So early diagnosis is another area where in addition to drug surgery uh, and public health, uh, I anticipate there will be significant changes. So this is a really pretty optimistic uh, outlook. But it is important that we do remember that the human aspects of medicine, nursing and allied professions uh, is still critical. The interaction between a person and their doctor, a person and their nurse or their physiotherapist, their radiographer, these are still absolutely essential. And these would be recognizable to our predecessors centuries back. The professions and a person who is now a patient uh, that interaction is critical, and that's an old thing, and that hopefully uh, will never cease to be uh, a very important thing. So here's my summary. There are many areas of medicine where the remarkable march of progress continues, but we do need to address some areas that are lagging. Some areas that are getting better, with some examples out of many, but all of them have got caveats. Cardiovascular disease, and that's heart disease and stroke. I showed you the graphs for those much better treatments for cancer, many inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, infectious diseases, but remember the risk of antimicrobial resistance, many of the rarer diseases of childhood, particularly ones based on genetics, and the fact we're moving to less invasive treatment. But there are areas where we really must address the challenges which are going much less well. Diseases associated with obesity, some aspects of mental health are still moving quite slowly. Dementia, a major challenge for us as a generation. The shift to an increasing proportion of multimorbidity where people have multiple chronic conditions rather than just one. The cost of healthcare, which is a real threat to the best provision over the longer term. Widening disparities between the health outcomes of the less well-off and the wealthier. Uh, and this is something which, as a society, we really do need to address head-on. A continuing, gradually decreasing, but still huge burden of disease caused by smoking. Uh, and uh, as I think everyone is aware, uh, the really serious problems we have with social care. COVID has re-exposed those, but they, this is something which remains a major challenge in the UK and around the world. So a very positive optim and optimistic forward look, but there are many challenges that we still need to address. Thank you very much.